Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from multiple locations in the San Gabriel Valley of sunny Southern California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead people to Jesus, a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you and opens your heart and inspires you to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Hey, Real Life Church, it's Pastor Jim. It's good to be with you again today. God bless you wherever you are. We're in a uh, a fascinating season together as a church. We're in a series of studies called Territories in which we're looking at various texts in the Bible in which God's kingdom expanded physically and spiritually. And at the same time, we're praying that God's kingdom would expand in our lives as we enter this new year in 2022. Uh, We're in the middle of a 21-day fast, which if you're tuning in for the first time today, a fast is where we give up something for a certain period of time to dedicate ourselves to prayer. And many of us have given up sweets or caffeine or social media. And for 21 days, we're praying specifically that God's kingdom would expand in our lives. We've seen the fruits of this fast already. I think about 10 Children and students in our church have decided to follow Jesus already this month. The faith candle is lit again this week because this last week in our middle school and our high school ministries, students decided to take that step across the line and decide to follow Jesus. Uh, and we've baptized eight people already in January of this year. It's, it's turning out to be a great start to the year. Uh, and if you think that's uh, just coincidental, uh, you don't understand the power of fasting. Fasting will transform your life or a congregation uh, as we do it together because it opens up our hearts to God's uh, transcendent work in our lives. And so as we fast together, we're already seeing God's kingdom expand spiritually as people take that step across the line and decide to follow Jesus. And I suspect we will see even more of that as we go along. Uh, we're in the, uh, the midst of this series because you look around our country and for decades, the number of people in the United States of America who call themselves followers of Jesus has been declining. The number of churches uh, out there have been, has been going down. Churches have been closing their doors. And we here at Real Life want to counteract that, that slide, that erosion. We want to be on the forefront of introducing people to Jesus and welcome them, welcoming them into the community of faith. Uh, there's, there's been a, a two-year pandemic now, and that has had a radical effect on churches. Most churches now are down 35 to 50% in attendance, and a lot of them have closed and are continuing to close. Empty pews are an American public health crisis. The church has a vital role in our society. And if we let that erosion go because we're comfortable in our church, then we're, we're failing to see the implications of that Shifting of territories, spiritual and physical, for our country, for our world, for our children, and for our grandchildren. It matters that the faith lives and gets passed on from generation to generation. So we continue in this series, studying how God's territory expands in the hope that we will see it expand in our own lives. We're going to dive back in today into our studies. We looked at Abraham and Sarah who initially stood in the the land that God was giving them, in the territory God was giving them. And God promised them as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. But by the end of the book of Genesis, they're in slavery in Egypt. We looked 
uh, last week at how Moses had led them out of Egypt, had wandered through the desert, and as they were approaching the promised land, two spies, Joshua and Caleb, went into the land and said, the land is good, and if we're faithful and obedient to God, God will give us the land, right? It was a call to, it was a call to faithfulness, and it was a call to bravery, Today, we're going to get into the story of Joshua as he actually crosses into the land, as he expands the territory further, and we're going to look at a famous story of the people of God approaching the city of Jericho. As we get into our studies in the scripture today, let's say a prayer. Jesus, bless our studies of your word. May we find more of you in it. May we, as we study your word, see more of your will and more of your ways. Use our studies of the scriptures to mold and shape our lives into Christ-likeness, that we might look more and more like you and concentrate less and less on ourselves. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I want to read to you from the book of Joshua, uh, if you're following along in the Bible, this is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. So sixth book of the Bible, uh, still, still pretty close to the beginning if you're not used to navigating your way through there. And we're in Joshua chapter 5. Now, God's people have been in slavery for years in Egypt. And now they're approaching this promised land, the land that was once theirs because it belonged to Abraham and Sarah. But now the land is filled with people. Uh, who live terrible lives and have basically desecrated their land. And God has called them back to go and take the land again. Uh, you'll hear this land called Canaan, right? It's the land of the Canaanites, but it becomes the land of Israel. And we're going to pick up in Joshua chapter 5 at verse 13 and look at what happened when Joshua went into Jericho. Now, when Joshua was near, Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him, with a drawn sword in his hand, Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. Uh, a reference like that only occurs twice in the Bible. The first one is when God speaks out of the burning bush to Moses and says, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. And it doesn't use the phrase holy ground here, but it's the same, same idea. You're standing in the presence of an angel, of the leader of the Lord's armies. You're standing on holy ground. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Chapter 6. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. They saw him coming. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. This is the ark of the covenant, the golden box in which they carried the tablets that the Ten Commandments had been written on. And in this ark, God's presence rested. Wherever the army went, they carried the ark in front of it because God's power rested in the ark. On the seventh day, 
march around the city seven times. So they're supposed to march around seven days, and on the last day, seven times, with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout, then the wall of the city will collapse, and the army will go up, everyone straight in. I don't know if you realize this, but Jericho has been excavated. Jericho is the second most excavated city in the Middle East next to Jerusalem. And they found deep within the ground something from back about 1500 BC. They found layers of walls around Jericho that had collapsed. That's not exactly an inaccurate timeline for when this might have happened. Now, that became very controversial in scholarship because there are all kinds of scholars who are paid to be skeptical about anything that sounds like it supports the Bible. So there are all kinds of scholars now who say, oh, it couldn't have been the right time. There was nobody living there when it happened. It's not what the Bible says. But here's the truth. Archaeologists have found walls around Jericho that collapsed about 1,500 years before Jesus. Make of that what you will. When you read this story, there are all kinds of questions that naturally come up. I mean, it's a cool story, right? God does this miraculous thing and they march around Jericho and the walls fall down, but it's really cryptic. I mean, immediately you ought to have some some really uh, uh, immediate questions. Does, Does God speak through angels who are just walking around with swords saying, I'm in charge of God's army? Is there like an army of angels marching around out there somewhere? And And what about this whole conquest of the promised land? What about God telling the Israelites to go in and kill the Canaanites and take the land? That doesn't seem right, does it? What kind of good God does that? And what's the whole deal with marching around the city seven times and then the walls fall down? Why didn't they march around once? Why didn't they just blow the trumpets? Why didn't God just knock the walls down? What's what's the deal with the marching around seven times? Is that just for show? What is it? The story is filled with mystery. But there's a message in the mystery. And the message is powerful. And if you've never seen it before, this is going to open up this text like you've never seen it. Look at the first question. Are there really angels walking around out there? There's a guy who used to attend our church. This is somebody in our own midst. He's moved away, but he was a member of our church. This is not something I Googled or heard about secondhand. This is a friend of ours who went to our church. When he was a boy, he said his mom always had sort of a deep spiritual instinct. He didn't know how to describe it, but she was just sort of aware of things that other people weren't. And he says he remembers one time being in a, a little, uh, little store when he was a kid. And he used to go and he'd sit at the counter and eat a grilled cheese sandwich. And there was a comic book row and stuff. And he was in there with his mom one time. And as they sat at the counter eating a cheese sandwich, a man walked in behind them and then walked down the, the one row there was in the store of books and comic books and so forth. Uh, Our church member says that his mom turned to him and said, did you see that man? And he said, yeah. And his mom said, go walk down that aisle and look at him. And the little boy got off his stool and he walked down this aisle. And he says it was an aisle that just was a dead end in the store. There was no way out. You walked down it and you had to turn around and come back. He said he went and looked down the aisle and there was nobody there. He said his mom told him that was an angel. I don't know. Make of that what you will. It's not that hard to believe that God might create angels, right? I mean, 
God does all kinds of things that are invisible to the naked eye. God, God obviously creates different species. God created human beings upon whom his favor rests. He created dogs because he loved them. He created cats because, well, he created cats. And, and he creates all kinds of things that are invisible to us. So it's, it's not that hard to imagine that there are more invisible things than we're already aware of. I mean, I mean, look at the, the depths of space that we've never explored before. We've never even seen the bottom of the ocean floor. Look at all the subatomic particles that we keep finding in smaller and smaller iterations. All the, the cellular life that's around us all the time that we never see. There are all kinds of invisible forces at work, magnetic and nuclear and gravitational. It's not all that surprising to believe that God might have invented things simply for himself to enjoy that we're not aware of. I remember going snorkeling in the Philippines one time. I was on a mission trip over there and we were building houses for the poor. And one day we took a break and went out on a rowboat out in the ocean to a little island and snorkeled around in a place that I don't think anybody had ever seen before. And the coral reefs on the ocean floor around the Philippines are like an underwater explosion of fireworks that are there all the time. And only God and the fish see them. Sometimes I think that God is just like a child who enjoys the wonder of his own creation. And I don't think he's bothered by mysteries that are unfamiliar to us. So could God create angels that walk around, an army of angels? Of course he could. Did he? It kind of looks like he did. Does he still send them into the world today transcendently to interact with people? Keep your eyes open and never fail to show hospitality to strangers because by doing so, some people have welcomed angels unaware. So that's the question of the angels. Let's get into the harder question, a question that most pastors avoid when they get to texts like this. What's with this conquest of Canaan? God sends the Israelites in to this, this people that don't hardly see it coming. And he says to them, kill them and wipe them out and take the land. What kind of good God does this? I've met people who are not Christians for whom this was a sticking point. They weren't going to believe in Jesus who said, love your enemies and forgive those who harm you and pray for those who persecute you because they look at the stories of the Hebrew scriptures like this and say, what God is that? Well, four things to know about the historical context of Jericho. Number one, Jericho is a military outpost, and it's very likely that there were no non-combatants in the city. Jericho is located right at the entrance to Canaan, so that if you wanted to get into Canaan, you had to go through Jericho. So they wisely had built a military outpost there to protect themselves from outsiders, from invaders. So most likely, everybody in this city, or just nearly everybody in this city, is a soldier armed to the teeth. Secondly, the Canaanites were into horrific practices. The Canaanites worshipped a god named Molech. Molech was a bull god. And archaeologists have found statues of the bull god, which were made of iron. They found these, these uh, ancient relics of the Canaanite civilization. And, and these, these brilliant ancient engineers had created a statue with hollow caverns in the chest and, and a fire beneath it. And in the caverns, they would place sacrifices. And as the fire lit and burned the sacrifices, the metal would contract so it looked like Molech, the angry bull god, was flexing. Inside the caverns of this, this statue, they would place rams and goats and sheep and doves and sometimes human children. Remains of burial grounds have been 
found with all kinds of animal bones and the bones of infant children. The, the practices of the Molech worshipers were horrific. It was like a satanic cult. It, if they had been put on trial, they would have received the death penalty. Is it any wonder that God said, that's enough of that? Don't picture the Israelites going through, going, storming through the suburbs of Laverne and think that's what's going on in Jericho. It's a very different kind of situation. Number three, God has already set up a context for how he deals with cities in the book of Genesis when he deals with Sodom and Gomorrah. And there we see a tremendous kind of mercy because Abraham bargains with God over sparing the city. God says, I've seen the detestable practices of those cities and I've had enough. And Abraham says, hold on a minute. What if we can find 50 righteous people in the city? Will you spare it then? And God says, yes, okay, for 50. And then Abraham starts to bargain, and it sounds like an auction in reverse. What about 45? If I can find 45, will you spare it? Yes. How about 40? Will you spare it then? Yes. And then Abraham hedges his bets, and he starts going down by tens. What about 30? Yes. What about 20? Yes. What about 10? Yes, Abraham, if there are 10 righteous people in the city, I will spare it. We've seen the precedence in Genesis of God's mercy. You've got to imagine what's going on in Jericho if God has had enough. The one family that helped the Israelites, Rahab and her family, are spared because they helped the Israelites. Most likely, this is a horrific city of detestable practices ruled over by thugs who govern with violence. And finally, fourthly, the Israelites don't even go about attacking Jericho in the traditional uh, way. They don't surround the city and starve everybody out, which was the, the matter of ancient warfare. That's how they did it. Instead, when they march around the city and back off, the people of Jericho could have retreated on any one of those days. They could have left the city and run away safe. So even the way the city is taken is merciful. So I understand the hesitation when you read this and go, this is terrible. Why would God do this? There may be context there that we can't see, which in our minds, would make it a more palatable, reasonable acceptance of ancient warfare than when we first read it as kids skimming through our Bibles. But this is the context of ancient Jericho. Uh, there was uh, all kinds of detestable practices we know that were going on in the land, and the approach to taking the city actually gave them an out. But we as followers of Jesus today know that that also existed in a different dispensation of God's work on the earth. God's plan A for the earth was Adam and Eve living in Eden, perfect peace at harmony with God. They rejected God and ran away. God's plan B was living under the law. God says, fine, if you want it your way, I'll give you laws to follow, 600 of them. And if you follow them, I will bless you. But if you do not, you can expect that you'll face the consequences of the law, which is God's wrath. Jericho existed in the time of plan B. Jericho existed when the world suffered under the, the punishment of God's law. And when they were faithful, God blessed them. But when they rejected God and lived in detestable ways, they faced God's punishment. You and I live in the time of God's plan C, which is a time of faith and grace. Because Jesus went to the cross for us. And on the cross, he took all of God's punishment on himself. 
When Jesus died, for the, died on the cross, he made a way for you and I to believe in him and thus be completely forgiven of everything we've ever done wrong. It, it's so easy to take that step and say, rather than putting myself in front of God's law and trying to answer to it, I'd rather accept God's grace and be forgiven. Why on earth would you want to stand in front of God and say, I bet I'm good enough for your laws. I bet, I bet all 600 of those laws out there, I've been good enough to prove myself. On, on the last day when we stand in front of him, you don't want that to be your position. You don't want to say, I want to go back to plan B and prove how good I've been. I've heard all kinds of people say, well, I've been good enough. God will probably forgive me anyway. Are you sure you want to take that stand? Because you'd better look pretty closely in the mirror before you do. Every self-serving good act you've ever done will be seen for what it is in light of God's law. Everything you've gotten away with without people knowing it, that'll be shown in the light of day. If you and I try to present ourselves as righteous in front of God's law, it's like putting up fake walls and saying, look, I'm protected. I was good. I was nice to people. I'm good enough. And God's law is going to stand outside those walls and see right through them. God's Law is going to stand outside of our walls of righteousness and say, little pig, little pig, let me come in. And our walls are going to come tumbling down. I would never want to stand on my own righteousness when I look in the face of a perfect God. I'd much rather say, see that cross over there? That was for me. You did that for me. And I know I'm forgiven because you promised. If you've never taken that step before, take it today. Why would you miss out on the best gift you could have? Just say, Jesus, I want that to be for me. I accept the fact that you died for me. Now, come and be my Lord and my guide and my teacher. We live in the time of God's plan C, where we can be forgiven for simply accepting what he did for us. Jericho happened in the time of God's plan B. And that's the story of the taking of Canaan. Now let's get to the third question. This one is fascinating. I saw something in the Bible I've never seen before. And this has totally changed the way I see this text. This, this just transformed the way I understood this text. Why does uh, Joshua and the people go walk around seven times. Why does God tell them to do that? What purpose m might that have? That seems like such a bizarre behavior. Is it, just, is it just a show? Is it just a demonstration? Does it just make for a good story? I stared at this for a while and realized this probably has some meaning and we can probably figure it out. There's probably some reason behind this which is not completely lost in the mystery to us. Why did this happen? Leviticus chapter 25, God tells the people, I want you to have a celebration called the year of Jubilee. And you're going to have it, he says, every seven times seven years. He doesn't say in the 50th year. He doesn't say after 49 years. He says after seven times seven years. And in the year of Jubilee, we're going to restore the land to the way it should be. All the people who have gone into slavery, everybody who's made themselves an indentured servant, everybody whose debts have piled up so much that they couldn't afford to pay them, they are now free again. 
In the year of Jubilee, the slaves go free and the land is returned to its original owners. If you went bankrupt and had to give your farm away to pay off your debts, it comes back to you in the year of Jubilee. It's a bizarre economic system that God set up. In the 50th year, they wipe the slate clean and the land goes back where it belongs. And Jubilee was to begun, was to be begun on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And it was to begin with the priests taking the ram's horns and making trumpets out of them. Look at what happens when Joshua enters Jericho. He goes around the city for seven days, and on the seventh day, he goes around it seven times. Jubilee came around seven times, seven years. Jubilee was the year where all the slaves were set free. Joshua and the people are slaves returning from slavery in Egypt back to their home for the first time. In this year, the land is to be returned to whomever it was taken from. This was the land that God gave to Abraham and Sarah. And it is now being returned to their descendants. And how do they begin the incursion into Jericho? The priests take the trumpets made of ram's horns and blow them. I think Joshua entered Jericho at the beginning of a year of Jubilee. That's not in the Bible, and I didn't see it in any commentary, but it just makes too much sense that way. I, I, think, the, I think the marching around seven times and blowing horns is all drawn out of a commandment in Leviticus 25 where God says there's going to be a, a regular season, a regular event twice a century where I restore things to the way they should be, where I give you back what you should have. Because we worship a God who loves to compensate those who have been robbed. We love a God who loves to bring justice to a world that has served us injustice. And God says, I will not allow that to go on forever, neither in this world and not in the world to come. If you have been robbed by this world, if it has stolen, you, stolen from you and left you empty-handed, the day will come where I make things right. Just live for me, obey me, follow me, and I will restore what has been lost. I think the moment that Joshua entered was God declaring jubilee for his people again. Now, for Joshua, there's still some mystery to that, right? I mean, it's still God saying, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to march around the city seven times. You're going to blow the horns and all the walls are going to fall down. And Joshua's like, yeah, we're going to do what? Is there anybody else up there I can talk to? Right? There's, there's still a mystery to this, and Joshua has to commit himself to living through the mystery. And fundamentally, that's the message of this text for you and I. You and I have to live into the mysteries of God, because the message is in the mystery. When Jesus tells us how to live our lives, we have to with open hands, surrender them to him. Whether we understand what he wants or not, whether it makes sense to us or not, we have to just take him at his word. Jesus at one point says, the greatest commandment is this, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And those are four territories that we have to surrender to God. We have to love God with all of our heart. When you love Jesus with your heart, it means you give your life to him. It means you say, Jesus, you're my Lord and Savior, lead my life. When you give 
God your soul, you're giving him your, your sense of right and wrong, your ethical reasoning. You're letting him decide what's best for your life instead of you. Uh, it's kind of like uh, a grandfather was sitting and uh, petting his, uh, his cat, uh, except he was patting it the wrong way from the tail all the way to the head, and he kept patting the cat backwards like that. And his grandson looked at him and said, hey, granddad, you're, uh, you're patting the cat the wrong way. And granddad said, well, cat had better turn around then, shouldn't he? Right? Sometimes I look at the teachings of Jesus and go, love your enemies. I don't want to do that. I want to hurt them. Don't love money. Wait a minute. I really like money. I'm not sure I want to stop loving it. And it's not Jesus that needs to change his teachings. It's me that needs to turn around. Love God with your heart and love God with your soul. Trust that he knows what's right and best for us and obey where he calls us. Trust God with all your heart, soul, and mind. To love God with your mind is to surrender to him the way you perceive the world. Your epistemology, philosophers would say. Let God govern the way you understand the world to function. Because a lot of Christians out there only believe in a God who sort of started up in the universe and then he got kind of vague. He didn't call anybody to go march around cities. He just kind of sat up there and didn't do much. That's somebody who hasn't surrendered their mind to the biblical worldview. We're called to live functioning with the reality that the biblical worldview is right. And that means giving Jesus our minds. Uh, it reminds me of a, a little uh, town in the Midwest where there was a, a church and uh, across the street from the church, a, a bartender opened up a bar and it was this kind of sleazy uh, dive bar and the church people didn't like it at all. They were just resentful that it was there and they were always talking bad about it and they said, we're praying that it'll just go away. And one day, the middle of the night, sure enough, the bar caught fire and it burned down. It wasn't usable anymore. And the church people were all smug. They were just rude to the bartender. And they said, we prayed and it burned down. And so the bartender did something interesting. He filed a lawsuit against the church. And the lawsuit was... Uh, his claim was that they said that they prayed that my bar would go away and it caught fire. And so it's, it's their fault. And so in their, in their defense, they had to write up uh, an appeal to the judge. And they, they wrote literally, we did not do that. Our prayers could not have done that. Our prayers could not have caused the bar to burn down. We don't, that's not how God works. And so the judge, in looking at the, these cases, uh, said he mused, what am I to do with a bartender who believes passionately in the work of God in a church that doesn't believe in it anymore, right? That's the people who haven't surrendered their mind to God. If we give God our minds, if we let God take that territory, then we really do see a God who's living and active in the world and eager to transcend and transform. And finally, fourthly, we love God with all of our strength. To love God with all of your strength means you do everything for Jesus. Doing everything with excellence because we know that it's Christ that we're serving. And knowing that when we come up against giants and walls and obstacles that are too big for us, it's God's spirit that will empower us. Not because we're strong enough, but because he's big enough. And that's the story of Jericho. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for these powerful stories of long ago that show us who you are, that show us how you delivered your people and how you will deliver us. So we pray again that you would bless this year 
and expand your territories in our hearts, in our communities, in our church, and in our world. Claim more people for yourself with the power and love of the gospel. And expand the footprint of the church that more might gather for worship. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go be the church. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Facebook or Instagram at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.